Well, good morning, Trinity Church. It is good to see you here this morning. I want to thank the uh, communications team for a nice new bumper video. They did a great job, didn't they? Yeah. I love that last worship song. I don't know about you this morning, but on my way here, I just, just felt like I needed to open my heart more to God and have a, tough, uh, a sense of the touch of heaven. And, uh, and I think God is doing that in my heart this morning. So I hope he's also working in yours in that way. Uh, we're in a passage of scripture this morning that I think is so important for us. Um, it really ties in well to last week to what Bill had to say to us. And it just reminded me of how sometimes I've gone to a, a movie theater and seen a movie. And at the end of it, it was like, wow, that was a keeper. You ever been to a movie theater and seen a movie and you go, I've just got to see that again. And uh, maybe even buy the DVD or the Blu-ray or get the digital copy online. The most recent experience like that for me was uh, Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. Better than the first, uh, you know, movie. And I, I went the first time with my daughter. And second time, I went with my wife and daughter. And it was like, wow, that was a keeper. Last week's message from Bill, uh, I believe, uh, was a keeper. Amen. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. It made me say, man, I have got to hear that again. And so I did. I went back and listened to it again. I took copious notes. And I'm, I'm glad that many of you agree with me. But I want to ask you the question this morning, what caught and held our attention so well? What made his message so gripping? I think for me it was... Uh, this call to self-examination, to put my life on pause for a moment in the pace of everything that I was doing and just sit before God and reflect, Father, how open-hearted am I toward others? Is that something I'm practicing? How forgiving am I of others in my life? And I think it was a message that he gave to every one of us. It was a timely message. It was a very important message, I think, for all of us. And it was almost as though Bill took out God's digital stethoscope and he put it against our chest as a church, both nationally and locally, and, uh, and he cranked it up to its highest maximum 40x amplification. You know, he's just listening away for that deep thump, thump heartbeat of love for others. Uh, I think love for those of us who are close to us and love for those of us that we feel distanced from. And I think Bill just wanted and God wanted us to listen to that heartbeat, how strong it was, how open it was. And I think we really did. And I think one of the things about last week's message that really touched my heart is the fact that God says, I can resolve your relational conflicts. I can free you from your regrets. Praise God for that. Uh, I, as, as your loving Heavenly Father, can give you a new freedom from your past pain. I can give you a fresh start in all of your new beginnings and friendships. But there was one key passage that I want to go back and look at just briefly this morning because 1 Corinthians 7, what we looked at last week, is actually the doorway to what we're looking at today and next week. So take a look at this passage. It'll be up on the screen for you. It's from 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 to 11. And Paul writes, I rejoice not because you were grieved, 
There's no pleasure in having hearts burdened and grieved and, and hurt. But, he says, because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no regret through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And Bill reminded us that is a deliverance of our relationships without a loss of affection. God restores that for us. And it says, whereas worldly grief produces death, this sense of isolation and silence and sadness. And then he concludes, for see what earnestness, spude, what great concern for others' well-being that this godly grief has produced in you. The church at Corinth needed to hear those words. And I think churches today need to hear those words in our culture today. And I think we, as Trinity, needed to hear and benefited from those words. Because God, who is a God of reconciliation and restoration, uh, refuses to leave any of his family behind as captives to sin, and we should do the same. So looking back at 2 Corinthians 7, what we see is that God gave us the secret sauce for soured relationships. He said, do you want to make them better? Here it is, right in 2 Corinthians 7. He provided the way forward for stuck relationships and stymied mutual love. He offered the cure for cancel culture and clogged spiritual arteries. He said, here's the path forward. And the Corinthians took it to heart, and they discovered that God restored their relationships. And they said to themselves, yeah, that was a keeper. That message was a keeper. So if you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 8? And as you do, I want to have up on the screen some of Bill's, Bill's closing words to us. Because these lead right into what we're looking at today. He said, it takes the grace of Jesus to reconcile us with God and each other. Once we were reconciled, it results in our becoming ambassadors of Christ to the world. But how can we carry this message of joyful reconciliation to the world if we ourselves are not reconciled to each other? We can't. But here's the beautiful thing, he said. I can sense the joy in this place as we seek reconciliation, gather and worship the Lord. Affection is starting to flow. And now that it is, Paul is going to ask them to open their hearts to something huge, a big ask for open hearts. 2 Corinthians 8 is God's big ask. He looks at a church in Corinth that was struggling with each other, struggling with Paul, and they finally figured out what we need is godly grief, we need repentance, we need our relationships delivered, we need an earnestness for each other. And when that finally happened, he applauds them, and he says, now you're ready for the big ask. And they're thinking, we thought that was big. Yeah, it was good, it was big, but there's something much, much greater that I've been wanting to pour out to you. In fact, you heard about it about a year ago, but now I want to get back to it. And folks, this big ask is contingent on chapter 7. So if, after having heard Bill last week, we said, you know what, that, that was great information, I like it, not sure that I've processed it fully yet. If we're still struggling to have open hearts, we might as well just go home right now and come back in two weeks because 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 hinges, is contingent upon what happened in 2 Corinthians 7. So until we get 2 Corinthians 7 right in our hearts, even if we're just starting to process it, 
God says, okay, then I can give you the next part of my ask. And that's what he does here in 2 Corinthians 8. Look at uh, verses 6 and 7 of 2 Corinthians 8. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so a year ago he had gone and, and said to the Corinthians, here's God's ask for you, and they weren't quite ready for it. But as he had started, so that he should complete among you this act of grace, underline that, highlight that in some way in your notes, maybe in your Bible I write in my margins, this act of grace. Verse 7, but as you excel in everything, and listen to the things they were doing great in. This was not a completely uh, disabled church. They had many good things going on. He says, as you excel in faith, you guys have, have the ability to look at what God has said and say, he's going to do it. So they're excelling in faith. They're excelling in speech. They're preaching and they're teaching. And in Corinth, the tongues that was going on. In knowledge and wisdom and discernment and the power of the Spirit. In all earnestness, your spudet for each other is growing. And in our love for you, you're sensing that more. He says, as you excel in all of these things, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So what is Paul's big ask? It's this act of grace. This idea of excellence in acting in grace, it shows up repeatedly in these two chapters, 8 and 9. Ten different times, Paul refers to this act of grace, this grace of God. And it's kind of like seeing an abundance of raisins in your raisin bran, right? You ever noticed how that kind of has diminished over the years? I remember as a kid, you'd open the box and like, wow, look at the raisins. Now you have to dig for them. It's like observing a host of new electric cars in your work parking lot. It's like noticing a, a scurry of ground squirrels in your backyard. You look at those things and you say, you know, something is going on here. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says, look at this. Something is happening in this chapter that is related to grace and these actions of grace, these multiple actions of grace. Something big is going on. Now I'll let you in on a little seminary secret. When pastors preach 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the big ask they are generally encouraged to make is an appeal for more financial giving to the church. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are like the touchdown zones on the gridiron of grace and giving. You know, it's like, yeah, we, this is where we're going to encourage people to give more money to God. There's just one problem with that. The word money never shows up in chapters 8 and 9. Never. Paul never talks about money, denarii, any kind of coinage, any kind of um, currency in the Roman Empire. He doesn't even talk about it in these two chapters. So we realize that this typical tendency to preach about giving more to the church in these chapters is really not as much in Paul's mind. He has something much greater in mind. He's asking for actions of grace. So if, if you've ever gone to these passages and you've said, okay, this is going to challenge me to give more, I want you to elevate your thinking from money to grace. He's going to talk about giving, but it's the grace that he's targeting. So where does this grace come from? 
Well, if you notice in your notes or up on the screen, we find in verses 1 through 5, it comes to us as we give ourselves to God first. Now, he's going to reference three different churches. They're called the Macedonian churches, but they were typically Berea. And what do we know about Berea? They were good students of the Word of God. Whatever Paul said, they said, let me check that in the Old Testament, please. Oh, you're right, you're right. Thessalonica. Paul writes to the Thessalonians about the second coming of Christ, about the rapture, and he talks to them about doctrine. And Philippi, where we have this beautiful uh, statement about what Jesus does for the church. So these Macedonian churches, he writes to them, and notice what he says as he's referring to them as he talks to the Corinthians. We want you to know, brothers, these are the Corinthians, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, on their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected. Now notice the next phrase. But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Paul takes his binoculars, and he looks back at Macedonia, and he shares them with the Corinthians. He says, take a look at this. Here are these three churches who are in great affliction. They are being oppressed. The word here literally means to be pressured, and yet they're giving in a huge way. The word affliction is a word that describes political and economic uh, oppression. That is, uh, they were being canceled by their culture for their faith. That sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? Suppliers were refusing to deliver goods to their businesses because of their uh, convictions. Banks were calling in debts, the full amount, all at once, and closing doors on these guys because of their convictions. Local tradesmen... Local unions were barring them from the work sites. You guys can't come here. You're Christians. And so they were gradually becoming more and, and more uh, impoverished and unable to sustain themselves simply because they loved Jesus and they proclaimed his gospel. By the way, this word extreme poverty is uh, the word the Navy uses for bathysphere, that vehicle that would go down to the very bottom of the ocean. And Paul looks at their circumstances and he says uh, they were in over their heads in debt and, and they were being crushed by financial pressures. Kent Hughes from Westminster Seminary writes it this way. We fancy ourselves poor <clears throat> if we have to think about it before going out to dinner. As to credit cards, the Macedonians always left home without them. They had no cars, no designer wardrobes, no vacations, no TVs. The surrounding culture kept squeezing them harder and harder because of the Macedonians' devotion to Christ. Immense pressure. They were poor and picked on. The grinding poverty and the crushing tribulation made life very difficult, in fact, impossible by our standards. In a parched existence... Squalid little churches gushed forth with the joy of giving. The riches that welled over to others was not the small amount that the Macedonians could give, 
but their joy in what God has done for them. Notice that. Their joy in what God had done for them. It was an act of grace, the grace of giving. There is no other accounting for it. And they did the begging, not Paul. The sense is that Paul, seeing their extreme poverty, was reticent to take their gifts because he knew that it would deepen their deprivation and plight, but they wouldn't be denied. Paul, we entreat you, don't deny us this honor. Such is the grace of giving. It is not dictated by ability. It has nothing to do with being well off. It is willing. It, gives its, it views giving as a privilege. It is joyously enthusiastic. Folks, where does that kind of gutzbah giving come from? Where circumstances would dictate to them, you've got to bring in your finances tight. Hold on to them. You're going to need them. And instead, they just open up their hearts and, and give it out. Now, you might be saying, well, wait a second. Wait a minute, Pastor Doug. I thought you said this didn't mention money. Didn't you say that? Any of you remember me saying that? Yeah, yeah. There is a wealth of generosity here that Paul talks about. And it may be as this is where pastors get the idea of money. But I want you to keep in mind that the focus here is not on what they are giving, but on how and why they are giving. I think it's important not to miss. The actions of grace they're exhibiting didn't come from them. It came from God himself. Look back at verse 2 in your text. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. They could only be generous because God had been super abundant to them in his grace toward them. 